Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Uh, we have to get a little bit practical this afternoon, I think, you know, get down and dirty here. I want to talk about how to begin to pray. Now, I don't know how many of you would be people who would practice meditation or mental prayer daily for, I don't know, is this part of your life or are you beginners or where are we? Um, how many do this regularly? Uh, okay, I get some, okay, yeah. Brother, do you too? Yeah, yeah, you do, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, first I want to, uh, you do too. <laughs> Me too. Uh, first, I want to pick up on something that Sister... See, what, what Sister uh, Maria was saying about Lexio Divina is really one of the central issues in the life of prayer, as you will see when I talk about how to begin to pray. Because the, 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 the practice of Lexio Divina, which now, is, to, of course, is talked about as a kind of something that you do every day for 20 or 30 minutes, in the tradition, is really not, it is not something that you do. It's something. It, it's a way you live. It's a way of life. That is, that in the liturgy, or it, whether it was in the Eucharist or in the in the psalmody, as the divine office we sometimes call, if something struck you, you hung on to it, and you thought about it, or you and and it wouldn't strike you necessarily as a kind of intellectual thing, but. You know, sometimes a phrase, I don't know if you've had this experience, but it, in, in church when you hear something, or like in the responsorial psalm, an antiphon, or if you, or some part of the reading, a sentence might strike you. And I remember when I was uh, early in my Dominican life, I, when um, the um, Sermon on the Mount was being read in the church, and the reader said, and Jesus came down the mountain, and, and for some reason that phrase stuck in my head. And Jesus came down, and so for for the next day or so, I I just kept that that thing kept rolling around in my mind, and it it produced not so much any rational thought, but a kind of it opened up a sort of longing for something more, and I mean it's it's not so the word of God you see is meant through the liturgy to confront us in a way, and the confrontation is that when you experience the Word of God when you when you really open your heart to it or you listen carefully it draws you into the into what what it is that God wants to tell you or to to say to you 
And it has to do with what I said this morning. You're really being drawn into Christ's own relationship with the Father. Now, I bring this up because, you see, the, there are many hours in the divine office. You know, Matins, Lauds, Prime, Ter, Sex, Known, Vespers, Compline. And in the tradition, you have people who say that the office should interrupt your work or your life. But there is another way of looking at that, and that is that your work and your life is interrupting your prayer. So in other words, what's the context in which you're living? And the point of Lexio is really to develop in the... It's really, I think, about two things. First of all, it's to develop this openness, this sensitivity to God and his action in us, which comes simply from hearing the word of God proclaimed in the, in the church, that, that, or reading it in your, in your room in, in, in the Bible. Okay. But it is also meant, I think, to help you to learn how to stabilize your thoughts. Because the great enemy of the spiritual life in the tradition is not so much your sins, though of course they have to be overcome, but it's that your, your thought, your mind is so fickle. Your heart is so easily tickled by something, you know, to, to wander away. And one of the purposes of Lexio is that by repeating and pondering something, you're really disciplining yourself. Because, see, as you grow in prayer, what will become, to really mature in the life of prayer, one has to learn how to control one's thoughts. I mean, I don't know, I presume you've had this experience, you know, you can be praying very intently to God, and all of a sudden you're wondering if, you know, your clothes are in the dryer, and, you know, should you go and take them out, or, you know, um, uh, gee, what am I going to eat for lunch? Did I, I forgot to make, you know, uh, all these things that come, and then all of a sudden you've gone from uh, being intensely involved in, in prayer, and then the, the, the silliest things in the world, you know, you can be worried about, a, 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 you, you know, your toenail uh, that bled this morning when you, I mean, all kinds of crazy things. In the tradition of the spiritual life, you see, you, you, you come to the point where you have to deal with this. And Lexio is one of the ways in which you train yourself. You're training your mind to keep coming back to uh, the focus about what it is that God wants you to know or to hear or to do. And so it isn't really just a simple rational thing. It's more that the whole person has to be lured back to a focus on the things of God. And this has to be done in a very definite but gentle way. And Sister uh, alluded to this. Tension is always the enemy of prayer. So, you know, if you're, if you're praying, I mean, uh, this is perhaps a good idea. It's not extreme. I shouldn't pretend that it's extreme. But, you know, you can be having a very intimate moment with Christ after, the, after Holy Communion. And by the time you leave the church, you wonder if there's a God. You know, who is this God that I think I believe in and that I was so close to three minutes ago or a minute ago, you know? That's how unstable our thoughts are. And this is a great theme in the tradition, the instability, the fickleness of the mind. And so gently bringing oneself back is very important, and you just you have to keep doing it. And that's what Lexio facilitates, you see, because it has, it's like, it's, well, it's, you know, it's like chewing. It's, it's the nourishment thing. You know, you're chewing it over and over. Very often you chew a text and it doesn't yield you anything. But in the, uh, in the, in the desert tradition, of course, the monks and the nuns, they, they believed that when they pondered a text, that there was always something for them personally. 
And when they didn't gain anything from it, they thought that was what they were to gain, you see. That was, what the, that, that was the message, that God wants them to keep turning to him whether or not he rewards them. Because, you see, really the goal is to love God because he is, not because he gives me something or he saves me. But ultimately, you see, union with Christ, which is, of course, really our life, but it's not the end. The end is that union with Christ will lead us to knowing and loving God and, 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 and serving him simply because he is who he is. And so whole, it takes a lifetime, of course, to, for, to develop a purity of heart where you're, you're, because, you know, we, we want something from God. And, you know, uh, sometimes praying can be for a lot of people like milking a cow. You know, you get something from it. And you know, when, when you've got the contented cow, everybody's happy. But when the cow isn't so contented, there's mooing and crying. And, and uh, that's what we can get caught in a lot of that dynamic. So I think what Sister was talking about is really important. And the, 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 of course, the, the divine office is one of the chief ways in which we can decide to live in a world that is God-centered and let the word of God keep confronting us throughout the day. We've talked a good bit about prayer, and I, I, and I think we know, thanks to Sister, about the centrality of liturgical prayer and the divine office. But there is really a further conversation that we need to have this afternoon, and that's what I would call the nuts and the bolts of the life of prayer. And here I'm, of course, talking about meditative prayer or uh, mental prayer or contemplative prayer. People use several different phrases. And so I, I, I don't want to bore the people that are already fairly adept at this. But I think we do have to talk about some of the basics. Um, while the life of virtue is all about choices, um, the life of prayer is, in a sense, really about wasting time for God. You see, I mean, a lot of things that we do as Christians have purposes, significant, but prayer is really just spending time with God because God is God. And, of course, um, it's very hard for us, especially as Americans, to do this because we are very, you know, we're practical and we want to, we want to achieve, we want products. We're, you know, let's produce something. What, what do you get out of it? What is, how is this helping you? How is this advancing you? And of course, real prayer will require what St. Francis de Sales calls holy indifference. You know, uh, am I, did I have a good prayer session? Francis de Sales, of course, would say, God be praised. If you say, gee, I really have been so distracted at my prayer, God be praised. You know, let, the, let, let God have all the glory. Because prayer, you see, is, is where when we begin the life of prayer, it's really about God and me. And where we should end is that it's about God and me. We begin to recede. We begin to see that our real place is to be towards him giving him what is his due, which is the acknowledgement that he is God. It's, we're going right back to what, the way Sister began. You know, what, what did the Lord say to Catherine? You are she who is not, and I am he who is. See? The early tradition speaks of prayer from the heart or of the heart. This phrase expresses the universal conviction that prayer touches a core somewhere deep within the person 
the center of one's identity and one's hunger for freedom, for the hunger for love, and ultimately the hunger for happiness. The intellect is influenced by prayer from the heart, for it aids in a certain clarity of mind and an insight into things, things that are both natural and supernatural. Prayer holds a place of, uh, as well in, re, in relationship to the will because it aids in the choices that we make. It facilitates our making the right choices. In prayer from the heart, it is often the emotions that are revealed as transitory and secondary in, uh, and of secondary importance in our decisions. So prayer then strengthens the mind's capacity to know and urges the will to a greater docility to the work of the intellect and offers a prudential assessment of emotions and imagination. In other words, prayer is the essential companion that we need in our pilgrimage towards God, towards eternity. If you have any experience of trying to pray on a regular basis, you have to change, you, 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 have, you have already experienced something that all who hunger for God experience, and that is that we often find ourselves approaching prayer in a state of spiritual slumber. One of the reasons why prayer is so difficult is because we're doing all kinds of things until we get to the moment of prayer, and then, you know, if we've decided we're going to pray between 7 and 7.30, until 7 o'clock comes, what are we doing? We're running crazy, and probably uh, multitasking. Multitasking <coughs> doesn't work in the life of prayer. It's an enemy, it is an enemy of, the, of a real spiritual life, because it violates what is, you know, the, the virtue of simplicity. That is, that you, are, you trust God enough that you can live this moment for what it is. Time to fold my clothes. Time to study. Time to clean the kitchen. I don't know, all the things that you have to do. Uh, but when you're constantly thinking ahead, planning, and that's what happens in prayer, isn't it? That we're tempted to use that time to plan what we're going to do during the rest of the day or what we're going to say to so-and-so the next time that we see him or how we're going to talk back to somebody who, you know, dished us, or all the, all the kinds of things that go on in our heads, especially relational things. I mean, you know, how many times have you tried to pray and you're replaying conversations or trying to analyze again why you let somebody take advantage of you or how horrible it was that you took advantage of someone else? But it's usually their fault, let's face it, you know, <laughs> at least in my experience. I don't know about you. <laughs> I mean, I've been wrong in my life, but not that often. You know, and as I often say to my siblings, Mrs. O'Donnell did raise some fools, but I'm not one of them. <laughs> so, prayer, you see, um, we can go to prayer deaf to the sound of God's voice and, and blind to the movements that he makes within us. Prayer requires a certain vigilance of heart. If you don't prepare for it in some way, it doesn't have to be that you dedicate your life to it, but there has to be some way in which you begin to say, gee, I, I really got to slow down as I get ready for prayer. And how do we awaken the heart that's in slumber? That's the question. And Sister has already told us, it's really through the Word of God. You see, putting oneself in a disposition of humility before the Word of God is the traditional way in which the heart is awakened. 
And that means that at least I would suggest that in the beginning of your life of prayer, that you always, as the first step in the, in, in, in the time of prayer, that you would read a bit of scripture. And by that, I mean maybe a line or two. That's all. I'm not talking about a chapter or, you know, the whole Bible. But even if you read one or two lines and pause. And now you might want to, you might want to take that orange and squeeze the juice out of it. But you might just hold it. And eventually, if you do, you're going to begin to smell the oil that comes off the skin of the orange. Or you're going to feel the roughness. And you're going to want to break it open and you want to experience it. You see, Scripture has a remarkable efficacy to open our hearts. But one has to approach it um, with a reverence and a confidence. And that's how the early monks and nuns went from being in slumberland to being alive to God through Lexio Divina, which simply meant that they took one or two lines of Scripture and they let it, if I may say, sit on their hearts. So I'm not really talking about a complicated structure. I'm not suggesting a method of, of meditation, you know, which I mean, is fine, good, although I, I think Sister and I are both, we're out of tradition, so we don't, we don't, you know, this is not a big value to us. That's much later in the tradition where people try to. I remember when I was a, a when I was a young high school student, and one of the sisters that taught us said to me one day, "Do you know anything about prayer?" And I said, "Not really." And she gave me a book, a wonderful book called "Conversation with Christ," and it was it explained how you make a meditation. And so I went to church, and I, you know, there were six steps, and I went through the steps, and I tried for a long time. Uh, but eventually, I took the book and put it somewhere. I don't know where I where I put it, but I put it far away. Uh, I mean, it was it was just so foreign to me to try to talk to God or be open to God through this system. But for some people, it works wonders. I mean, it's just every person is different, and so you're going to find that if you hold the Word of God reverently at the beginning, that God will eventually teach you how to pray. And your, prayer, your way of praying will be different from everyone else. And if you're a little weird, and some of you are, I can tell already, uh, uh, you know, you might have a little weird way of praying. Uh, and I, I feel that you're in good company here. A few lines of scripture at the beginning of our prayer time is really an auspicious way to begin. And there is this wonderful line from, um, actually he's a monastic author, Andre Luf, well, he's deceased now, he says, the word of God is made for our heart, and our heart is made for the word of God. The two are made for each other. And this is a wonderful entryway into the life of prayer, you see, because it's less about a technique or a discipline and more the mystery of God who is beckoning to us, but it requires that you believe. You see, it's, it, it really is more, more than being a discipline. The life of prayer is about faith. Because, and, and your faith will be tested in the life of prayer. Because it is difficult to believe that God actually said things to me. Now, he doesn't say things with words. Uh, but I know sometimes what, he, what he's asking of me. And, and it isn't always easy. And in the beginning, you can think you're just imagining all this. And, it, you know, you might be. I'd say up your meds if you're imagining it. But, uh, you know, presuming that you're, 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 you're not imagining it, this is what happens in the life of prayer. Every once in a while, you know, you know something. And it's because 
You have in faith let go of your need to control your life so completely that you've let God for even a second uh, stake his claim on your life. So intellect, will, emotions, and imagination all are drawn into the mystery of prayer. And so when we say prayer from the heart or prayer in the heart, that's what we're talking about, that, that, that the whole person is somehow galvanized by the encounter with the Word of God, whether it's in the liturgy or in Lexio Divina or in the time of prayer. The whole person is drawn by the Holy Spirit into the mysterious relationship between Jesus Christ and, his, and the Eternal Father through the action of the Holy Spirit. You see, you're being taken into something. We may think that we're receiving, but there is God taking something, and what he's taking is taking us into his own life. And so this is why we talk about, as, as I said earlier this morning, um, this is why it's so important to understand that the Holy Spirit is doing the real praying within us. And what we call prayer is really what's going on on the surface to dispose us and prepare us to receive whatever is going on in the depths. And we, we, while we don't know exactly what's going on at this moment, we know what is going on, and that is a transformation. This is really the whole of St. Thomas's theology of grace. For St. Thomas, you see, grace is really about transformation. The transformation of the, of the person interiorly, such that it, you know, it, 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 it brings forth the fruit of a virtuous life. And the flowering of the life of virtue is that we not only believe and hope, but that we come to love. It is true that the perfection of the Christian life is charity. But if you expect to be ushered into the perfection of charity by God's grace, you will need first the perfection of faith. Faith, and that's what so much of the life of prayer is about. It's really about believing every single day that when you pray, when you, when you take the word of God reverently into your hands, place it into your mouth, let it seep into your mind and heart, that indeed something truly is happening and you can depend upon it. The disciplines and structures that we establish are important for they stabilize us even when our human powers are exhausted or we are discouraged or we suffer from doubt or fear. So, you know, let's say that you pray every day in the morning, maybe for 15 or 20 minutes, but you've been out, you know, you had you went out drinking or you went out to dinner and you, you know, you were at a party. And so, you know, you wake up in the morning and say, well, this is crazy. I can't, I can't pray today. I mean, you know, I'll do this later today, which you know you won't do. Uh, that's always the lie that we tell ourselves, you know, I'll do it. I used to always reason, well, it's better if I do, if I, if I get my laundry done now, then I'll have my mind clear, you know, then I won't. But of course, what do you, you find other things because you go to the laundry and then that tells you that you've got to iron something and then it tells you that somebody else wants you to do it. I mean, it, in the life of prayer, a certain discipline or commitment has to be made. And it means that you know, really, you have to struggle to give yourself to it every day, even when you don't feel like it. This is where the transcending of one's emotions is very important. Because, you know, you come to a certain day, 
you're in exams, uh, you got company coming, you're, you're, oh, you're home with your family. I don't know. I find this very trying to be home with my family, not because they're not wonderful and I don't love them, but, you know, your, your whole life is at their disposal. And so um, the temptation is to say, oh, I really can't do this today. I, don't, I shouldn't have to do this. I mean, me, poor me, you know. Nobody understands how tired I am. And all of this kind of self-pity and self-indulgence in the life of prayer is very dangerous. Now, I'm not suggesting that you have to be an Amazon, but as Sister indicated, you have to be a strong person. You can become a strong person if you commit yourself to prayer. I want to talk about three areas of structure uh, with regard to prayer. Time, place, and the body. Okay? Time. Any relationship requires an investment of time. If it's going to grow and mature, you have to give a relationship time. Friendship of any kind is a call to spend time with the one we are, uh, we care about, or especially the ones we love. If you really love somebody, or if you intend to love them, whether it's romantically or, or you know, uh, just as, as friends, you, you have to invest time. The investment of time, of course, usually involves serious sacrifice. You may want to spend an evening or your free time pursuing your own interests. You may want to read a book, uh, but your friend wants you to go for a walk. Or you may want to work out, I don't know if that's, that's what your generation does, you know, instead of, uh, uh, you know, sitting down and talking because you, you're afraid of, oh, anyway, okay. Uh, or you may just want to savor being alone. You know, it's great to just have time to yourself, but somebody wants you to call them on the phone and they haven't talked to you and blah, 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 blah. One has to choose the way of friendship, and that always requires the giving of time. And the same is true with the life of prayer. When you make plans with someone you love, even when tempted to blow them off because of something more interesting, or because, because something more pleasurable has come along and you want to, you're not sure, should you tell a little white lie to get out of it? Or, you know, because you do love them and you, they're your friends, but, uh, you know, here's this chance to go to the Met or, you know, to go to the theater or to go to dinner or to see all the things that come up, you know? These are all the, these are the moments of choice when the will can be, can be seduced by the emotions. And so this is where rational thinking becomes very important. And in the life of prayer, you see, you have to make a definitive decision. I am committed to being a man or a woman of prayer. And you have to stick to that. Okay. Here again, the emotions and the imagination can confuse and even deceive. You can choose what appears to be the right choice, when in fact you are making the choice that will not bring happiness but may have destructive repercussions on a friendship. The wrong choices can easily weaken the bond of love and affection and lead it to be killed off. And you have killed off perhaps what, is, what was once a promising relationship of human love and companionship. It's a simple predicament that we've all been in, right? I mean, hasn't any, everybody, has anybody here not experienced this? I mean, come on. If you haven't, 
talk to me later because we have to go into triage here. I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, this is life. And, and the life of prayer is meant to bring clarity to our lives. So prayer requires time. We have to keep our appointment with God. How long should a time of personal prayer be? Well, of course, it varies according to the person and the stage of our development or maturity. But most writers about prayer would say that 15 minutes is the kind of sad minimum that you can use for a daily period of prayer. I mean, you might begin with five minutes and move it to 10 minutes, and but the goal is really a half hour is a minimum, a daily minimum, a half hour. And then, of course, if you are so moved by the Holy Spirit, you may find yourself praying for a longer period of time or hungering for a prayer for a longer period of time. Many of the saints, of course, um, broke up their prayer time by having a half an hour in the morning and a half an hour in the evening. It just depends on the person and the way in which you uh, commit yourself to prayer. The, the universal standard for daily prayer is about a half hour. For most men and women of prayer, it is this 30 to 50 minutes that is the daily structure. That's usually what most people who are serious about prayer commit themselves to. When should you pray? At what time of the day? Well, a lot of authors, including uh, Father Philippe, Jacques Philippe, would say, when your mind is refreshed. And when I first read that in his book, I thought, you know, when is that? <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe when I was 10 years old and I didn't care about anything. But I mean, you know, I, I, I find that kind of advice like, well, I mean, I, it's good. I, I, it's my problem that I don't understand it. But I... And he says, I think he says, when the mind is refreshed and you're not burdened with responsibilities. But just living your own life is a responsibility that's tough, you know? I mean, figuring it all out. I mean, how do you put the pieces of this jigsaw puzzle together? That ain't easy. And, and a lot of times it's not pretty, you know? This, I think, suggests that the earlier in the day that we can pray is always better than later. And this, again, most of the saints would say this that as the day progresses, activity increases, and you never know what's going to come. You can say, well, I'm going to pray right after supper. But then, of course, you get the phone call, or you get this invitation to do something that you have to do, or you know, work interferes, all kinds of things. And so it's, it, it, traditionally, I would say, the earlier in the day, the better. And this, of course, brings up the question of, can you haul yourself out of bed to pray? And, you know, of course, I say this to our student brothers when, when I talk to, you know, the greatest enemy of the spiritual life is the snooze button. That was an evil invention. This, you know, 10 more minutes, 10 more minutes. And I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day that I said, well, how often do you hit the snooze button? He said, never more than four times. <laughs> that's because you get fired. If you, you know, I mean, that's not because you're committed to prayer. I mean, your boss won't take you without, you've got to at least take a shower and appear fairly decent. For most spiritual writers, the early morning hour before employment, before the activities of the day begin, are, is the best time for prayer. And this means rising at an early hour. This kind of sacrifice may be needed in order to have a time away from family or work obligation. And this is something you have to work out. I mean, 
this is where I think having a spiritual director is helpful, because if you're accountable and you can work out the difficulties, it's, it's a little bit, it's, it's, a, it's a little more intimidating when you have to go to meet with somebody and tell them, you know, I only prayed three times this month, you know, because I was too tired. Oh, my heart aches for you. You know, what can I tell you? Uh, place. Prayer requires not only time, but it obviously it requires a place. Where is the best place to begin a life of prayer? Well, it would be ideal to pray in a church where the Blessed Sacrament is reserved in the tabernacle. That's great. That would be ideal. For those committed to daily Mass, it might be possible to arrive 20 or 30 minutes before Mass or to stay afterwards for a period of private prayer. It certainly is true that authentic prayer is paying attention to the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit within us as he prays the prayer of Christ. And so you can see the fittingness that you would be in the, in the presence of the Eucharistic Christ, because that's really what the Holy Spirit is internalizing in us, is the power of, the, of, of Christ present in the sacraments. And, it, and you might say, what we experience in the Eucharist is that we receive graces in the Eucharist. But it's like making a loaf of bread. You know, you have to knead the dough. And prayer is like the kneading of that grace because it's in, it's in the life of prayer that you begin to see the consequences of the Eucharist. The graces of the Eucharist enlighten the mind. They clarify things. And they make it, very, they make it much easier to overcome to transcend the emotions that can plague us all. However, since God is everywhere, many men and women who are hungry for the life of union with God, which is what prayer promises to yield, it may be more realistic to set aside some small corner of our home, a particular chair in the bedroom, or some small corner some chair in the office, if there's an office or a sewing room. A woman told me the other day that she's a quilter and she has a special chair in her quilting room where she says her prayers, as she puts it, but she means make her, makes her meditation. The ideal is to have a tiny space reserved for prayer. It can be just a cushion on a chair that you take out of the drawer or the closet and you use it. It doesn't, doesn't have to be much. But again, you know, we're, 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 we're enfleshed. The more we have that, that touches us, the better. Many men and women that I know keep a candle which they light during the time of prayer. Some people don't light it. Uh, you know, they just like, you get these candles that have, it smells beautiful, you know, so whatever. But my mother was a woman of prayer, but our house was so crowded with people that there was no possibility of even a tiny space for her to claim as her prayer corner. And often in the evenings, she would sit at the kitchen table to read the Bible or some religious book and to pray the little office of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Then she would often sit, uh, many times with her head in her hands or with her head down on the table, for a long time. I don't know, I mean, thinking, praying, being. And I do have memories of rushing into my parents' bedroom and seeing my mother kneeling at the side of her bed, saying the rosary. But, of course, she never did this without being interrupted, because we're, you know, 11 children, and, you know, uh, 
in a tiny house with one bathroom. You know, I mean, we, with all of her burdens and responsibilities, she found moments to commune with God. She was hungry for the divine because she came to understand that her true happiness could only be found in the encounter between the human and the divine in Jesus Christ. True prayer requires time and space. I'm, I'm uh, amused as I think about it because I, I sometimes join my mother at the kitchen table and I, I started to read the Bible. And um, my, very soon after we started, she said to me one, one evening, she said, now, you know, you're reading the Bible. I said, yeah, I am. I was looking for the sex parts, to be honest. I mean, you know, I was a young kid in high school. I, that's what I, it was, it was, there's a lot in the Bible about sex, you know, it's amazing. And uh, she said, well, don't tell the, the nuns that you're reading the Bible. Catholics can't read the Bible. This was, of course, in the pre-Vatican II days when we were not allowed to read the Bible. And so I never could tell anybody at school that I was reading the Bible, but I, but I did read it. And I found more, I, I, I did find some sex, but it wasn't bad. It was good. I mean, it was, it was holy. Bodily positions. We're creatures made of flesh and blood. We're body and soul. The principle of our existence, the human soul, is immaterial. Consequently, human life is not simply a life of physical action and reality. There is the interior, immaterial part of the self that interacts with the physical. Body and soul are in constant interaction of mutual acknowledgement and influence. The condition of the body is influenced by the soul, and our interior self, the soul, is conditioned by the state of the body. When we don't feel well, for example, it's difficult to focus the mind. It's difficult to have clarity in, of, of choice or of will. And so prayer is difficult when we're not feeling well. Very often people who are sick, they can't pray at all. The life of interior prayer calls for a certain intention to the, par to the various parts of the body. The choice to sit or kneel, to have a cup of coffee or tea at our side, these are important decisions that will have an effect on the development of our life of prayer. Sitting on one's bed or in one's favorite recliner will not likely help us to pray effectively. I've been amazed by the number of people that tell me when I ask them what they do when they pray. Well, I, I sit on my bed and I, you know, I, lying, on bed, lying on the bed, they read the Bible and they think they're praying. Well, maybe they are. But, you know, how quickly do you think they, they drift off? I mean, you know, it's, I, I mean, I don't want to be cynical, but I'm, I've been alive a long time, and I know what, how weak we are. Nor will keeping that first cup of coffee or tea at one's elbow facilitate the journey into authentic prayer. That's another thing that a lot of people do, modern people. They have to have their coffee, their, their mojo, what do you call it? Uh, you know, it's rather a physical disposition of comfort but attentiveness is important. Sitting in a relaxed but respectful and attentive position is important. If sitting, both feet have to be on the ground and one's hands loosely in one's lap or holding a text, preferably the scriptures, but without tension. For as I've said, tension is the enemy of prayer. Beginning with a, brief, with a brief scriptural text 
One can then either remain sitting or kneel, but always in such a way as to avoid being distracted by the needs, by the need to be physically comfortable. Is it a little cold? Rise above it. Is it a little hot? Endure it. Some discomfort may be useful to keep us alert to the interior and the spiritual. This is really not about finding your favorite chair or, you know, being absolutely comfortable and crossing your legs and, you know, swinging or, or, uh, all this sort of casual way that we have. This is not good. Uh, every person is unique and different. So everyone's way of praying is unique to himself or herself. Nonetheless, it is the careful interior listening and the careful external discipline that is critical in the beginning of prayer. And I thought what we might do, yeah, we have time. Uh, I thought what we might do is engage in a little exercise. Are we up to, are we practical enough, you know? What I want to ask you to do, because maybe this is um, repetitious for, for a number of you, but I think it might be useful. I want to ask you to sit, uh, to settle yourself in the chair that you're in, but with your two feet on the ground, and you know, if you push your chair back and, and you put your hands in your lap loosely, uh, but be it com comfortable. And then I'm going to ask you to do two things. First, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And then I want to talk you through listening to all the sounds that are around you. There's my precious voice, but then there's the sound of all the electrical things that are going on in the ceiling, I guess. And maybe your own breathing, I don't know, in the person next to you. In the life of prayer, one has to slowly push away each of these sounds. You have to go down that spiral stairway into the deeper part of yourself. And it doesn't even matter that you ignore my voice. You have to get to that moment where. You can say the name of Jesus interiorly or just be quiet. And if you want to speak to him, you can say anything that you want, provided that you're willing to let him say whatever he wants. So you can hear the wind and slowly, quiet, silence, Jesus. This is the safe place where you can share with him your darkest fears as well as your greatest ambition. Okay. If you want to open your eyes, that's what is part of the process of moving into prayer. One has to make that transition. And, you know, somebody like me isn't going to be talking but God will be talking if you take the scriptures. And it is getting, it be, it, it's, it, it's not unlike swimming in the ocean. I don't know if any of you have ever, you know, but you know, in the ocean, when the waves come, you don't stand in heaven, you swim underneath them. And that's, and let them roll over you. And that's what prayer is like, especially in the beginning. You have to let all your thoughts, all the sounds, all the concerns, drift away and you, you go down beneath them. 
And you have to find yourself to that core of quiet. This is what prayer from the heart or praying in the heart means. That we go downward. Now, traditionally, the best way to make that journey is to read the scriptures and then to either repeat or to simply repeat the holy name of Jesus. That is, you just keep saying Jesus. You can also use what is called the Jesus Prayer, you know, Lord Jesus, Son of the living God, or the Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's possible, but it's a little complicated for most of us, whereas just saying the name can take you someplace, but you have to entrust yourself to him. You have to believe. You see, it is really about faith, the confidence that indeed he is doing something through the power of his word. When the scriptures are proclaimed in the liturgy, or when you read the word of God in Lexio Divina, the Holy Spirit is present. Now he is present already within, in his abiding presence, but he is also present in the word. And so you might say the interaction between the word of God and the abiding presence of the spirit within is the spark. It's just like making fire from rubbing two sticks together. Something happens. Now, you may, not, you may not experience it, and you may not find it very satisfying. You would have to go forward in faith. If you're not going to make a journey of faith, you will not learn the way of prayer. It isn't, it isn't easy. But it's not impossible, and I can tell you, there are not many short-term rewards. But the long-term rewards are fantastic. Uh, if you keep this up over a period of time, you will find that. The two must become harmonious. That is, the Spirit dwelling within and the Spirit coming to us in the Word of God. And this will require a kind of humility that is only born in the heart through fidelity to prayer. You have to begin presuming that you're the one in need and believing that God will give you what you need and that he will sustain you as imperfect and broken and wounded as you are. Real prayer always begins in our, in our wounds. It doesn't begin in our strength. And God wants us to need him. And so the more we depend on him, the more we need him, the more, as the saints would say, the, the more we rejoice the heart of God. He's looking for our dependence, and we're searching for our independence. You see the conflict. And the way of prayer is the way in which we are weaned from that need to be independent. The Holy Spirit praying within us in a manner unknown to us as we pray is our preparing our hearts to be enlightened and to be purified so that we can progressively become a temple of the living God. Okay, that's my little to-do for today. Um, let me ask you if there are questions. I, I didn't hear you. Uh, how would mental prayer differ from spontaneous prayer? Okay, the question is, how would mental prayer differ from spontaneous prayer? Well, when you say spontaneous prayer, I presume that you mean saying something that just comes to mind. Mental prayer is not something that is spoken. It's, it's silent, and it's personal, and it's something that takes, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. 
Whereas I think spontaneous prayer means like more like charismatic kind of prayer where you'd say things that uh, come to you and you feel uh, inspired. It's good. I mean, I don't mean to belittle, but it's a different it's a different form of prayer. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Sister, you had your and then some. Just more about multitasking. I, I, we live in an age where multitasking is the standard. Oh gosh, I know. I have. Well, it's not my brothers, but my sisters. When I'm talking to one of my, well, all of my sisters. I only have three sisters, but when I talk to them on the phone, they're talking to me, and the, I hear the water running. Then I hear the pots and pans, and then, I, and I, and, and it, of course, because I'm arrogant, I, it annoys me. And I say to my one sister in particular, I always say. Uh, Mary, if you're busy, you know, I'll call you some other time. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm just preparing dinner. Well, <laughs> hello, you're busy. You know, I mean, you know, because I want her to pay attention to me, of course, because I'm so important. Now, that's not, that, that's my problem. But also that she's un- incapable. The woman is incapable. And when I visit my family, I find this all the time, that, that people are doing two or three things. It's, it's diametrically opposed to what I call the virtue of simplicity. You see, because, and this is very strong, of course, a sister would know in the monastic tradition, you approach something or someone differently when you're doing two or three different things. And I know a number, I think women are better at this. Most, A lot of men aren't good at multitasking, and I certainly am one of them. But women sometimes... Um, they boast about how they can do three things at once, you know, and it's it's not good. Um, actually, there is some literature about this, and it has to do with the influence of of uh, the electronic devices that people use. And because we live in a culture where people suggest, well, th- this happens to kids all the time. They, they at least they talk to me about it. Their parents tell them that they can be whatever they want to be. They can do whatever they want to do. They can't. You know, I, I was talking to this young man recently, and he said, well, you know, I was brought up to believe I can be whatever. I said, but you're not that smart. <laughs> what do you mean? I said, well, you know, you're, you're, you're a nice guy. And I mean, you know, I hope you find a nice wife. But I mean, you know, you're not a genius. No, you're of average intelligence. I, be happy with what you've got in life. Well, he was, but, you know, and, you know, they get very emotional. And this has to do with, you see, I can get everything done. And it means then that, that unwittingly we have assumed to ourselves more responsibility than any one person can manage, but also it tends to teach us that nothing can go along without us, which is very bad. I mean, it has some very serious emotional and psychological consequences. Spiritually, it's disastrous. Because if you're going to be habitually towards God, ad patrem, if you're going to always be ready to respond to Christ, you can't be doing two or three things at once. He is very jealous. And, you know, if you are quietly doing the laundry or cooking a meal or whatever, that's fine. You can do that, in a, as we would say, in a recollected state. But you can't do 18 things at once and still be focused on God and you won't hear the gentle voice that calls you to a moment. Because sometimes, you know, in the spiritual life, your experience of intimacy with God is just a second. You know, if you get a second of it every five years, I'd say, count your blessings. But, you know, so often we miss the moments of intimacy because we're so busy with our lives. 
So it's really dangerous, spiritually, you know. You, somebody back there had a question. Yeah. So, like, I'm not really thinking about God when I'm thinking about how to design a skill. Like, my mind has to be on this other thing. Let me think how I should expect. Oh, the question is, if you have to be busy mentally about something, how can you be slowing down or thinking about God or preparing for the life of prayer? It's possible. How did Christ manage his life? How did the apostles manage their lives? How do Christian men, how did all the saints manage their lives? Because there were engineers who were saints. I mean, and maybe you'll be one of them. I hope you will be. Uh, and maybe, well, I won't live long enough to be the postulator, but uh, <laughs> somebody, uh, maybe another Dominican will be. It really flows out of the life of prayer. How, and, and, and I, because you see, the, the, the art of recollection, which eventually would be part of what probably prayer would lead you to, is that um, leaving prayer with this sense. See, the, the phrase ad patrem is very important because it isn't that Christ was always in direct dialogue with the Father. It's that there was an awareness that he had in his sacred humanity. He had an habitual awareness that the Father was always there. So I would say, you know, you're an engineer and your mind is busy, but you could, let's say that, let's say that your parents were having their golden jubilee, uh, gold, what is that? yes, of, of, of marriage, and you were involved in planning it. But you would go about your daily activities, but somehow it would, it would still be there. You'd be, you'd be aware of your parents and your kind of, that element, even though you're not directly thinking of it. And it's like that. You see that you develop this awareness of God and you carry on your duties. You can have a conversation. Uh, it, the two are not incompatible, but it does take the development of the art, I would say. Uh, not, it's not a discipline so much as an art of being ad deum. You know, it, 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 you just become so aware of God's presence that you don't have to be saying anything. However, it is true that when you have a break, that you probably would want to either say the holy name or make some gesture of acknowledgement that God is. Uh, it's, but, but, I mean, you're touching on something that's really important and not easy. I mean, it, it, it takes some doing. But, oh, it's quite possible. Oh, yeah, geniuses have been able to do genius things while being aware of God. And, therefore, sometimes it's that which feeds their genius. Because it does give you a certain lightness and freedom. You're less, bowed, uh, you're, you're less bound by the responsibility because you're sharing it with God. Oh, brother. Father, can you give us advice on how to pray after receiving the Eucharist? Yes. The question is, can I give advice on how to pray after receiving the Eucharist? Uh, well, this is a big, not big question, that's the wrong word. This is something that I think about often. because. I have been for many years puzzled by this. <sighs> you know, we speak about receiving Holy Communion. Christ comes to us. I remember when I made my first Holy Communion, we sang this song. Um, we were all seven, seven years old, and Sister taught us, Jesus, Jesus, come to me. Does anybody know? Sister would know the song. Jesus, Jesus, come to me. All my longing is for thee. I forget the rest of the words, but you know, Jesus, Jesus, come to me. And, um, and, and so that's the way I thought about communion. And so prayer then for me became after communion, thanking Jesus and receiving him and 
you know, trying to experience whatever, his love, listen to where. But I, I think I came to see, um, probably through the study of theology, I, I, I think that's an incomplete picture. Because in the Eucharist, the sacred humanity of Jesus Christ encounters my humanity and the humanity of Christ meet. And because there is this hypostatic joining of his human and divine natures, there is a communion that is begotten in which I have now not only access to his divine nature, but he, is, he has come to take me someplace. You see, I think that, well, I guess I'm saying who receives whom in the Eucharist? That's my question. And that's been my question for a number of years. Are we receiving Christ or is Christ receiving me and taking me to the Father? Because this is the moment when the, when the life of prayer, that is, that, that his union with the Father rises from the depths of my being to, to, the, to, to the very physical being of my humanity. And so I think that the moment, so I would say that it is possible to obviously to pray to Christ, but perhaps it is more, perhaps it is necessary to understand the full meaning of the Eucharist to think more about let, letting yourself be given over to Christ to take you where he wants to take you. And so, yeah, you know, and it's mysterious. I don't know where he's taking me. I, but that he is, I believe. Oh, I mean, I'm, he's taking me to the Father, but what that means today, I don't know uh, what tomorrow. So I, I think that if I were to suggest anything, I would say you might think about what commu- the word communion means. That's what I would say, you know. Uh, he's begetting a communion in us that is far beyond anything that we could, well, as Paul would say, hope for or, for or imagine. I mean, when you think of what it means for the second person of the Blessed Trinity incarnate to come body and blood, soul and divinity to me, this cannot simply be about my receiving something. It's about, I mean, the living God has come and, you know, he's, he's doing something. And he's doing something that has to do with his inner life. So I would think that that's what I would say, you know. Uh, okay. uh, so you talk mostly on Lexio Divina. Yes. Um, what role would you say that like devotional prayers um, or like spiritual reading has within the prayer life, or should it be subordinated to Lexio? Like, should Lexio take kind of? Oh yes. Like, you have a limited amount of time. Yeah, I think Lexio and, and and mental prayer are primary after the Mass itself. Yeah. Devotional prayers are very good. Um, spiritual reading, a sister alluded to this in her talk. Um, the, the, I, Lexio Divina was classically the reading of the scriptures and the fathers of the church. But, you know, in the um, post-medieval world, especially in the... Um, ruptures with the tradition in various parts of the world, very significantly the French Revolution. Uh, but, but, but actually with, with, with St. Ignatius of Loyola, well, probably with, with the fifth, after the 15th century, I would think, spiritual reading 
became the translation of Lexio Divina. And it came to be an, a, an exercise, a spiritual exercise, where you read a book that would give you something to think about. So you read, you know, Garigou Lagrange's Three Edges of the Interior Life, or uh, some book about prayer, or some book about uh, uh, the passions, or whatever. So that you had stuff to think about. But what was lost, you see, was the, contact, was the continuity of the tradition of Lexio, which really only began to be revived in the 19th and 20th century. It was really, in a sense, rediscovered. That spiritual reading... Now, when I was a novice, for example, um, we had a half an hour of spiritual reading in the afternoon when we sat and listened to a book being read to us. Horrible book. Uh, boring book. Um, it made you... You know, it made you hate religion. I mean, it was like, you know, get me out of this. Uh, and the and it was explained to us because we had to do this according to our constitutions. It was so that we would have something to think about during the day. But the idea that we were singing the divine office and that we were reading the scriptures that that wasn't what should occupy us had it had been lost. You see, but I mean, that's I, I. So I would think that takes priority over any devotional prayers. You know, devotional prayers are good, but that, that's all according to the individual. You know, like some people like the, um, what is it, the Mercy Chaplet, the, the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Some people are big into that. Other people are into the no, a particular novena or, I don't know, there are all kinds of things around, you know, uh, novenas. I, I, yeah, I was brought up on the miraculous metal novena. You know, so, oh, first him and then when, when uh, you know, engaging in, in intercessory prayer, uh, say, to make, you know, all your intentions perfectly clear, or should you just sort of... Thank you for asking the that. The question is, when you're making your intercessory prayer, is it necessary to go through your whole list, or should you just make a general in intercession? It is not necessary to go through your whole list. Uh, you know, you, you, some people have long lists that they make. Um, but a, a person, once you, if you start, if you enter into a discipline of mental prayer, eventually it's go you're going to say to yourself, gee, I really don't need to do this anymore. Because when you open your mind and heart to God on a daily basis in Lexio and in prayer, it's all there already. And you can say to people, I'll pray for you, but it doesn't mean I'm going to mention your name in Sheboygan. You know, it's, it's, uh, it means that God is going to read this in my heart. And so I think that the need to be... Um, I come from, of course, the, the uh, Catholicism of the 1950s, and that's when the, uh, that was the age of the daily missal became very popular. And so we all had, if you were a good Catholic boy or girl, you had a missal, which was a big, thick book. But you had to have a rubber band around it because you had all these leaflets and, and various devotional things and if you ever dropped it, it was... And one of the things that you had was the list of your intentions. And you had to go to Mass or church every day and read your list of intentions. I don't think so. No. I, I think it's something that you can kiss it up to God. You know, take your list and throw it away. Let God take care of it. When you said that's a multitasking prayer. Does that include, when, say, you're saying a rosary that your mind starts to wander off? Well, I mean, when you say wander, you mean wander to something non-religious? I'm 
If it, no, I think I think if you're as long as you're in the realm of the spiritual, I would say let your mind go. See, these external forms are meant to free us. I mean, this is the beauty of the divine office. That you know, because we're singing the divine office, I'm not paying attention to every single word of every psalm. If something strikes me, I sit with it, and of course, I'm so used to doing it that well, have I misunderstood? I can't hear you. At the same time, don't let your mind wander to something while you have breakfast. Oh, something non-religious, something outside the the spiritual. Yes. That, yeah. Well, then you try to gently bring it back. But if you go, I gotta get back. I gotta. Or you know how how what a waste of time this is. I can't even. Once you start turning in on yourself, you know it's very egocentric. You know, no, you have to gently bring it. But I mean, let your interior. In the history of the spiritual life, there's a kind of what would we say a dynamic. The early centuries up through the Middle Ages, there is a lot of external structure, observance, uh, ceremony, but very little rules for the interior. Once we get past the Middle Ages into the 15th century, 14th, 15th century, it's the inverse. People tend to want to reduce the number of externals, but increase the number of interior rules and regulations how you should examine your conscience, uh, how you should pray. Everything gets structured and organized. And so, uh, you know, so, and we live as a consequence of that, you know. Our order, of course, because we're medieval, we're like the Benedictines. It's interesting, we, we, sometimes when we have Jesuits visit us, I remember some years ago when a Jesuit came here, um, he was saying how he couldn't live our life, and I agreed with him uh, for many reasons. But, uh, he said, you know, you just have too much structure. And I, I said to him, structure? You mean because we bow and we wear funny clothes? I mean, come on. You guys, you have to examine your conscience three times a day according to this rule book. You have to discern with your superiors, you know, every year. You have to make a 30-day retreat. You have to make these meditations. I said, we don't have any of that. Nobody in my life, I've been a Dominican for over 60 years. No one has ever asked me what I'm doing inside of myself. But in these modern congregations, that's what they talk about. And very funnily, I, when I was, um, years ago, I was in a, our retreat house in, outside of Boston, and it was the time when what was called then a directed retreat was very popular, the Jesuit directed retreat. And we, we gave these directed retreats in our retreat house, and I said to the prior, you know, we're giving these Jesuit retreats. We don't know what they are. We should really find out. And there was at that time, there might still be in, in uh, Boston, a Jesuit center for spirituality. And so we asked them if they would teach us a course on how to do this. And we went in and this got me interested. And I said, well, I should really make a directed retreat. So in Gloucester, Massachusetts, a very beautiful place on the ocean, I went to make a retreat. And the first day I went, I met with the director and he gave me, I think, seven or eight scriptural passages. And he said, now you're, you pray these, and tomorrow we'll talk about them. Okay. The next day I went in to see him, and he said, now what, what happened in your prayer? Well, not really anything. I don't know. He said, well, 
something must have happened. I said, well, no, I didn't really quite know what you wanted me to do. Well, just pray them. I said, well, okay, I read them. I, I, well, oh, he said, you know, he gave me another set. So I went back the second day. And when we finished, you know, the light bulb went on in my head. I said, you know, this isn't working, is it? And he said, no, it's not. And I said, can I have a refund? <laughs> because they, <laughs> they charge you a lot of money, these places, you know. I mean, this was, and he said, I can't believe that you're asking that. I said, well, you know, you're want, you want to know what's going on inside me. And I'm really not ready to tell you what's going on inside me because I'm not sure myself what it is. I mean, you know, we, to myself, I'm a stranger. And, you know, some people are built for this, and God gives them the great grace to do this. That's the Jesuit charism, and I applaud it. I think it's wonderful. It ain't me. And I couldn't make my—you can't, you know, a square peg in a round hole. And so he, he had to go and see the rector, and the rector came to my room, and he said, I understand that you want to leave. I said, yes, I would. And he said, um, well, and you, you asked for a, a refund. I said, well, you could take the two days off that I stayed here. But, you know, yeah, I want a refund. And we got so furious with me. I think, you know, they hoped that they would never see me again. And there was no danger. <laughs> I was never going to darken their door again, I can tell you. But it's just a different way of, of approaching things, you know. Um, and you have to find your own way. And if it's that kind of organized, uh, modern, uh, Jesuitical way, that's fine. I, you know, I'll give you the books and try to help you. But... Uh, Okay, one more, and then we have. To... I think we'll actually have to end now, but oh, okay. we'll have plenty of more time tomorrow. That's right, we have the Q&A. Okay, thank you. thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.